Hey, everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Alice. Hey, now. Greg, what are you doing here? Hey, what do you mean? What I, Allison, where do you, you come from, Greg? I came from the world of childish, and I just want to make sure that your listeners know that you're just as wonderful on the, on the other podcast you do. What if they don't have kids? Don't need them. You don't need them. A lot of our listeners actually tell us they don't have kids. We talk about sex. We talk about all sorts of dirty stuff, but also parenting stuff. Yeah, so. Check out Childish, new episodes every Wednesday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Everyone, hi, hello, welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I'm sitting here in the pod cabin with someone who I know from a long time ago when I lived in New York and whom I have not seen in a long time, except we did bump into each other at Costco. It's reporter, anchor, mom, and now author, Courtney Friel. She hosts the video podcast, Keeping It Friel, Conversations on Recovery, previously worked at Fox News, and hosted the World Poker Tour. Currently, and I should have mentioned this just a moment ago (laughs) when I said reporter, anchor, uh, working at KTLA, and her book, which is a page turner, and everyone should go get it right now, is called Tonight at 10, Kicking Booze and breaking news. Hello. Welcome. Thanks for having me on. And we're now back in LA, both of us. I know. How do you feel about that? You like LA, yes? I moved to New York from Los Angeles, but I'm originally from Philly. Mm -hmm. And I've been out in LA since 99. So I just had my 20 year reunion. Congratulations. Or not reunion, anniversary. (laughs) Do you feel like it suits you more? Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I've kind of always been happy wherever I am. It's completely different than New York. The mm-hmm. polar opposites. Right. I was just back there. I'm I'm glad that I'm living out here. Let's just put it that way. It's yeah. more conducive for raising children, that's for sure. I yeah, I never I I wasn't even I wasn't in a relationship in New York. Um so I moved to LA and I felt like, oh no, did I make a huge mistake? And then sort of soon after that I got a job and I met Daniel, who I'm now married to and have you know, kids with, so I I felt like, okay, this was the right call, Mm -hmm. but I still do miss New York a lot. I love the aesthetic stimulation of New York and Mm -hmm. the the bustle, but it was cold. (laughs) (laughs) Weather's better out here. It definitely was. So you were recently in the news. You were a trending topic on Twitter um, Mm -hmm. because there's a story in your book about Donald Trump hitting on you. You shut him down. Mm -hmm. um, But then that went viral right which was crazy because i didn't really think that was gonna happen Mm -hmm. i mean it was one paragraph in the book but it got out because i was like having people read it ahead of time before it came out so look if that got on the map for people that i have this book about recovery and it helped the right person read the book and get help then it was so worth it to have it in there. That's what I was. That's what I was going to ask. I was going to ask. I, I didn't you- put it in there for the attention. Mm-hmm. It's just that those stories, which I also talk about, Fox News and having to twirl for Roger Ailes and those things. Um, that was all in the early sobriety months. You know, mm-hmm. right when I was coming back from rehab and stuff. So I 
kind of touched on like having to deal with that. And I talked about how at that point in my life, I used deflection and turned it into humor for what I was really feeling for that. About that. How did you feel? And, and you sort of answered this, but how did you feel about that being the thing that got so much attention and, and went viral, you know, before the book was even published or right as it was published? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I have mixed feelings on it because in a way, like it did get the message out there and my book was number the number one new release in four Amazon categories. Mm-hmm. So would I have had that much attention on it from just doing like local TV interviews or my Instagram page. So it's a blessing in that sense. I I mean, I did obviously take heat from people who um, thought I was making it up or whatever, but my office mate who was in the room at the time came out on record saying he confirmed that story. So um, I I think for the most part, like, you know, he didn't deny or he didn't come out and deny that that happened or anything right. like that. And it's just, it's just, look, it's a self-help. It's a me- it. Yeah. It's a, it's a memoir. Like you're allowed to put interesting stories that happen to you in your book. Right. And the story was, and then I'll move on. I did. I, just, <laughs> I, hope, I hope you don't think that, uh, that's what we're right. focusing on. Yeah, no, we're not. Um, but the story was that he said you were the hottest one at Fox news and that you should come to his office so you guys can kiss. Yeah, so I used to interview him on the red carpet at things, and Melania would always be by his side. And I also loved pageants, and he owned the Miss Universe pageant. And so one time I said, Donald, it's on my bucket list to be a judge on Miss USA. And he said, give me your card. I'll look into that for you. So gave him my card, never expecting him to call. He called me up on my Fox News office line. Mm -hmm. Like I said, my um, office mate was right in the room with me. And he was like, oh, well, since we're NBC and you're Fox, it's not going to work out, but what are your career goals? And you're the hottest one at Fox and you do such a great job. And, you know, we had small chit chat like that. And then out of the blue, he just said, you should come up to the office sometime so we can kiss. And I mean, that just is like, who says that? Right. That, that was the boldest line. Like I was thinking, hasn't this guy run for president before? And why am I not recording this? And where's the trash can to barf in? <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and then I was just like, Donald, I believe we're both married. I haven't said it like that. Yeah. Well, gross. So that shut that down. <laughs> um, so I, but I had no political motivation for that. It's not like I said like anything about his politics or even who he is as a person. All I said was that it made it difficult for me to report on the other women, like when they came forward for him to say that they were liars because Mm -hmm. like that had happened to me to a certain extent. I mean, luckily like we were a phone barrier was between us and it wasn't in person. What was your office mate's reaction? Well, I mean, I think he was like, wow, who's, who's that bold? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I knew that you partied in new york um although i did not know the extent of it and i knew that you had gone to rehab Mm -hmm. um but i didn't realize until i read the book that your substance abuse started like way before you got to new york right right yeah it just got escalated there um yeah i mean from the age of 15 on i could ne- I mean, I could never just have one drink. Like, it mm-hmm. was always a hot mess situation. I was really, really sloppy. And then when I moved out here 
um, when I was just 19, I started doing cocaine every single day because I worked at a tanning salon where my boss would just give my roommate and I copious amounts of blow. And I would do it at Santa Monica City College in the bathrooms. And I got straight A's that year. Mm -hmm. But then at the end of that year, I ended up at Cedars Hospital, like I'm having a heart attack, which I wasn't, but I was having massive like acid reflux. Well, yeah, that too. But like it turned out the reason I was thinking I was having heart attack was because I had um, like really bad acid reflux from like all the crappy vodka and (laughs) diet sodas I'd been drinking because that was basically my diet for that year. Um. So what can you tell me about the first time that you got loaded? I was hanging out with Mike and Frank (laughs) drinking like six beers really fast. This was in Pennsylvania. Yes. Yeah. And then I came home, threw up in my shower and my mom like found the puke towel the next day and grounded me. But I just kept up. I discovered I didn't really like beer. I liked Mm. Zima's and I would put Jolly Ranchers in. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What had been your attitude towards drinking and drugs prior to you trying it? Well, the year before I didn't drink and all of my peers were. So in a sense, I was kind of like a good girl in that way. Like, I mean, I didn't even have sex in high school at all. Mm. People called me like Catholic girl. (laughs) And so I feel like I was more conservative. But then once I discovered the effects of alcohol, I was down because I mentioned in the book how... I was really bullied and I was also really shy and alcohol brought me out of my shell and also helped me numb out the pain of, um, you know, not, not feeling like I fit in Mm -hmm. or people liking me. Had you always been, um, ostracized for lack of a better word? I, uh, yeah. I mean, I remember playdates as young as like six years old where the two girls that I was hanging, you know, playing with were turned against me and were mean to me. And in seventh grade, like my lunch table that I wasn't allowed to move, you know, they would just sit there and be like, we hate you. You're so ugly. Nobody likes you. Like they would just say that to my face. And I was thinking like, gosh, that's like so mean. Why would, I don't know. I just don't have a mean bone in my body. And so I made it a policy that I was never going to do that to people younger than me. Mm-hmm. But it was something, yeah, I dealt, I mean, all the older girls were always mean to me, even in my first year of college that happened. And even to a certain extent, I've dealt with it like in the professional world with women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I've just learned to deal with it differently now. Um, not that it's on you to understand why it happens, mm-hmm. but do you have theories about why? I can now look back and see it as it was like a jealousy thing because I was on the morning news. So they had to watch me every single day and I had gotten like an MTV commercial and I had gone to channel one news out in LA for two weeks for their student produced week. So I, and I was also an easy target. Like I refused to do anything back and I just kind of swept my feelings under the rug and they thought I was an easy target and it irritated them even more that I, it looked like it didn't bother me. So mm-hmm. they continued to do it. And now it's like I confront, I confront bullies now. Yeah. That's really interesting. You make that point in your book that you thought that the best thing, and I think I also, I think a lot of us have this idea that if you're being bullied, the best thing to do is like, don't let them know they got to you. Right. But you say that, no, you need to confront it. Right. I mean, at the time I was like, success is the best revenge because I was also living in the TV studio. I was like, I'm just going to focus on that. Mm. This is when you were... I've just noticed now, like when I've come across situations like that, like if I say like, hey, what's up with that? You know, why are you acting like that? Or that wasn't cool or whatever, that I've seen the behavior change in the people like, oh, they now say hi to me all the time. Mm -hmm. And 
So just from experience, I think that's the way to go. Is it automatic for you to handle it in in the moment now, or does because for me, it w- I would need to like go home, think about it, and then be like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Right. Well, I've really worked on not taking things personally. So if I get negative feedback um, or you know some criticism, even if it's coming from online people or criticism from coworkers or whatever, like hearing mm-hmm. rumors about it doesn't matter. Like you, people react to you on based on what they want in their life story, like mm-hmm. the characters that how they want them to operate in their movie and their story. Like if you're doing something that irritates them in their story, like they're going to take it out on you or if they're having a bad day, they're going to take it out on you. And it really has nothing to do with you. So I'm able to identify like, okay, that's someone's opinion. It's none of my business what they think. Like I'm, I know I'm awesome or, and, and I'm really able to have this buffer of just not caring. And it's been, it's been such a helpful tool. I learned it from, um, the four agreements, mm-hmm. which there's actually a book, the fifth agreement. Cause so there's an extra one. It's the four agreements plus the fifth agreement. So you might as well just read the fifth agreement, <laughs> but it, it really just helps you master your mind. And it also talks about like not making assumptions and you know, speaking well about yourself and being skeptical and learning to listen and always, you can only do your best based on how much energy and and like sleep and all that, that you have. So it's been helpful. And I talk, I give those self-help tools in the book. Mm -hmm. It's not just a book that has all these crazy stories because I can't tell you, you know, being sober for 10 years now, I can't tell you how many books I've read in recovery where all of the chapters are like, here's all the crazy stuff I did. And then maybe we'll hear what rehab was like. And then they're like, and then I got sober on the, the end. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, then what? Or are you still sober? And it's clear that a lot of people race to write the book right away. So I wanted mm-hmm. to have like 10, I thought 10 years was like a good goal for that because I am able to put like a lot of recovery into the book and how I tell how I got through like all these horrible things that happened in my 10 years mm-hmm. sober that I didn't drink or do drugs ever. Right. You got divorced. Yeah, that was horrible. Um, I mean, we're total, and I, my chapter is like how I made a love story divorce out of it. But uh, I had been in a relationship pretty much my whole adult life. And I didn't know who I was outside of relationship. And I was really lonely. And it's not like I was resentful about anything um, in the relationship. Like I was able to, you know, not hold on to that too much. I was just like, really lonely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, the death of the relationship, it was 12 year relationship, and also the death of like the family unit and stuff. Uh, it took me I mean, for two years, I like I like cried all the time. I mean, I was not not prepared for that, but it ended up being one of the best things for me as far as I was able to kind of get into this meditation self-help world, just like getting, you know, sober was also the best thing to happen Mm. to me. And I don't go into detail about my divorce at all because I didn't want to do that obviously, because I have two kids and, and plus I'm in an amicable situation. So, Mm. um, so you remind, so your, your ex Carter, who did my reel. Oh, that's right. <laughs> remember? oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. I think I was probably drunk when he was doing that. <laughs> I remember I came over, you lived in a five story walk up. Yes. He was editing reels. Yeah. Well, we had a reel making business. It was mm-hmm. for real media. Yeah. 
you guys were really good. <laughs> I still love, I love helping people do their reels even to this day. Yeah. So I remember I, I came over in the, the walk up and mm-hmm. then I also came back to get to like, add new stuff to it sometime after. And you were in, did you live in the seventies or it was a different, it was no longer a walk up. Yeah. It was either the high rise or it was, um, the upper it, West side. That's where I had bar- all the barbecues. Okay. The yeah. Oh, yeah. Backyard barbecue. I came over to your a cookie party that you hosted one year. Oh, right. right. Yeah. You hosted a cookie party. It was wasn't it like a cookie exchange? Yeah, for Christmas. Yes. A cookie exchange. Yes. And right. uh, my terrible, melty, sad-looking <laughs> cookies won like most funny cookie award or something. I I, I got a pet egg. That was the, the I gift. I don't even have pictures from that day. I should. I have one. some really? somewhere. I'll, I'll try to, to find them. them. Yeah, I have. I think some. I was just. I think that that was the first Christmas I was sober. Mm-hmm. So you met Carter because he was a newscaster and you were an intern, right? Right. So how old were you when you met him? I was twenty-two. Okay. Yeah. So that was your down in San Diego whole adult life. Well, and yeah, because I had gone from like relationship to relationship to a 12 year relationship. Right. And I had to learn. I mean, it was I talk about it like how it was a codependent relationship, too. And so like, I didn't really like everything was kind of controlled Mm -hmm. or done for me. And so then I had to learn how to do everything. I mean, I really had to grow up when I got sober and then grow up when I got divorced. He was pretty concerned. He and a lot of people around you were pretty concerned with your behavior. Yes. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I ended up with seven people surrounding my bed because they couldn't wake me up. I'd taken a bunch of pills, not trying to kill myself or anything, but they couldn't get me off the floor. I was passed out. And then that's when they did like an impromptu intervention. And at first I was like, ha ha ha. And then I realized, okay, they're serious. Like everything that they're saying, like they really want me to go to rehab. And it just made sense. And I was like, okay, I deserve more for my life. I will do this. I knew that it was going to be the best thing that I could do for myself. I knew in that moment because things were starting to happen where I was like, okay, it's probably going to be time to wrap this up soon. Like what? Well, Heath Ledger and DJ AM died and they like had things that, you know, in their system that I, I would mix in my system. I'm like, gosh, like, am I going to die in my sleep one night? And I didn't care, which was sad. And then also, I saw a video of myself with a bra on my head. I was on the train being interviewed about being a pageant winner. And I didn't even know that I had taken that video. And so when my friend who took it sent it to me like a week or two later, I remember I was in my Fox News office and I was horrified at what I saw. Like it was beyond messy and I was, you know, obviously slurring, but flopping all over the place and like snorting and like people around me thought I was horrendous Mm -hmm. like they were not laughing (laughs) they were laughing I mean they were like horrified as as was I so I was glad that uh, or so in that in that moment I remember being like oh gosh yeah and I just knew like I kept blacking out everywhere because I was taking Ambien and then going out to the clubs like Mm -hmm. I was doing all this like weird stuff on Ambien like ordering all these things writing all these like weird Facebook messages and stuff I mean that's a whole different topic but because you had decided it was like fun to take Ambien and then not go to sleep right well I love the high I got off like most people I guess take Ambien and then like jump in bed and go to bed but for Mm -hmm. me like I loved fighting off you know, I loved that high that I got. So that was kind of the end for me. So you were drinking, doing Coke and taking Ambien? And and Xanax and Adderall. I say like those five were my drugs of choice. 
Yeah. So no more, no more Adderall for me, even if like I needed it for, I mean, no, I can't have it because I would snort it. Like I would abuse it. Mm-hmm. Um, where did you learn about, because snorting comes up in a few different places. Like where did you learn about crushing and snorting pills? <sighs> I learned to snort Ritalin in, in college, right around the time. I guess, I guess just like I had bad influences as friends who were doing it. I kind of gravitated towards all of the, the party people once I started doing that, that mm-hmm. that was my, my tribe. And then once I got sober, it was like, oh, I really, these people aren't really that interesting after all. <laughs> Me being sober, it's like you end up doing, you know, how many nights did I stay up and like have these like crazy conversations with people I didn't even know, like till the sun came up, birds chirping and all of that. Like it just, it just got old. And, and so I'm, I look, I'm not like I'm grateful for those those times. I had a lot of fun in those times, but it was just time to be done. And I look at it like I lost the privilege. And I also love being sober, which is another reason I wanted to write the book because people think that they're never going to have fun again. And you know, their life will suck if they get sober, but it's just not true. And you like wake up to a new level of consciousness. But of course, that's for addicts. I'm not talking about normies who can mm-hmm. drink regularly. My brain just wasn't programmed that way um it is really fortuitous that in that moment when you were surrounded by seven people who were trying to get you to go to rehab who by the way seven people who all partied right well it was like a couple from high school a couple from college and a work couple uh they definitely did not take it to the level that right. I did. So like the college girl that was there was like, Hey, remember you used to snort my steel and snort my Ritalin? Like, remember that, you know? And like the work person who was the, ultimately the one who convinced me to go was just like, you know, you've just been like working like crazy and you're probably really stressed. And like, why don't you just take time off and like reset and just take, you know, nurture yourself mm-hmm. and, I was like, okay, I, I could do had, that. Had Carter pulled these people together to have like a real intervention? Um, well, he came up first and said, like, you need to go to rehab or we're getting a divorce. And I think I was like, F you. Because <laughs> I was still like so hungover. You know, I was like mm-hmm. googly eyed. I'd just been like, Whoa. And then he went back downstairs and that's when he came up and they all surrounded the bed. So I, call, I always say it was an impromptu intervention. Mm-hmm. Um. It, what I was going to say is it's really lucky that you, you didn't become defensive and that like, like it's amazing to me that you saw the sense in what they were saying and that you knew then that like, this is an opportunity for me. Right. And I think that only happened because of the signs that had been coming up. I mean, I really thought that I was going to get caught buying Coke from some shady ass person. And you know, what's interesting is that I think it was like a year or two ago, there was a story about a Fox news producer who bought coke like only like i don't know an eight ball or something once or twice from some guy and that guy was like under investigation by the fbi Mm. and it came out they that like all these high profile people had bought coke from him and it was it was little instances but guess what i mean she was in the news for that and then got fired so that was something that could have happened to me 100 percent. now you said that you started doing Coke when you were working at the tanning salon and then Mm -hmm. you were doing it every day. So like when you Mm -hmm. were working at Fox news every day, 
No, no, no. So that was uh, the tanning salon year. That was um, the room, the girl that I lived with, like, you know, the room, the, we would party like every night with the tanning salon guy and then he would give us some to take home. Mm -hmm. So like my roommate would wake me up and be like, here, do a line. And I would just have it on me all the time. And I'd stay up, you know, doing my school papers, be doing Coke. Like I would jump in a tanning bed after doing Coke. I don't even know how I did that. Um, what was the question? I was, I was asking, (laughs) were you doing, were you still doing it every day? Like when I knew you Fox? Well, what happened was, I got to the point where I thought it was a problem that I always wanted Coke even before I started drinking. So usually what would happen is I would start drinking and then I'd be like that annoying girl on the hunt for cocaine. Mm -hmm. But then I was like, oh, I'm going to go out tonight. Well, I need to make sure I have my cocaine lined up because I know I'm going to want it the second I start drinking. So that's how I know, like, if I was to drink again, like, there's there wouldn't be like people are always like, do you think you can have one glass of wine? I'm like, no, because the second like it would hit my lips, I'd immediately want coke. Right, right. Um, so then you were not doing it during the day though. Uh, I never went to work like drinking before work. Mm-hmm. I did go to work so hungover that I was like still drunk from right. you know just not sleeping it off enough. Like I remember one time I was out till two, you know, just wasted doing coke, and I had to wake up at four a.m. And then I had my first cut in was at six a.m. And I mean, I was totally still drunk in the makeup chair mm-hmm. and like praying to God, please, please don't let me you know, have a YouTube moment or something. (laughs) It's kind of amazing how much of a functional addict you were. Yeah. Well, I would get up in the morning and take two Adderall on my mini elliptical and get all these story ideas and everything. And then, and were you, I guess, I don't know if I, I needed less sleep back then or, I was definitely starting to feel, I mean, even at 29, like I was starting to feel hungover all the time, even if I'd only have like two vodka sodas with lemon, which was my drink. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was catching up to me. And were you prescribed Adderall? Well, and that's the other thing too. Yeah. I, all of the pills that I took were prescriptions that I had gotten from shrinks or whatever, but they, they just get paid in cash. So they'll give you what you want. Had you been diagnosed ADD or had you gone seeking Adderall? I, yeah, I don't know. No, I, I didn't have ADHD. I think I had been tested for it when I was a kid or something and Mm -hmm. didn't have it. Um, but I think that they're just so prone to, I think, you know, I was probably like, Oh, I I need something to concentrate or whatever. And definitely with the sleeping pills, I had to go to bed legit for the morning show. So it was easy to get those. And Xanax, I, I couldn't go anywhere without Xanax on me for like three years or something. I always had Xanax on me because I just thought, what if I have a panic attack, which all of that anxiety was created just by the nature of the chemicals in my brain. I can tell you that since I've gotten sober, I've not had a panic attack. And like, it's, I I do not need anything and I haven't taken anything, but for flying, like that was, Mm -hmm. used to be a big thing for me. I'd always have to have Xanax. I'd always have to have, I'd be, have to be drunk to fly. I'd have to have several drinks and I was like terrified of it. And I I don't know, it just, that lifted and I barely even notice when we take off and now. Do you experience anxiety at all now? No, I mean, I'm just kind of always calm. And then meditation, which I discovered five years into my sobriety, that has made me even more chill. And that's my solution. Like if I have something uh, that I'm not liking the feeling of like a negative emotion um, or a stress, any sort of anxiety, like I just go in my closet or wherever and meditate. 
So what is your typical meditation practice? It's 22 minutes. That's my magic number for it. (laughs) And I do mantras in my head or I do a body scan. And so I'm laying down listening to like my Zen music and I just kind of breathe in through every single body part from like my toes up to my head. And I, I think each part for working and not being in pain and like specifically like my eyelids for not having styes because I had a really bad sty problem. So like you're sending it kind of love, like, you know, my knees, even though they're big and ugly, according to viewers who harassed me about them. You said this and then (laughs) your knees are on the cover. I do not see anything. Well, those are Photoshopped. Those knees have some Photoshop. Okay. Well, so there's a knee filter. The one on the, the (laughs) one on the left is the real knee. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I truly don't see anything to anything. You would be so surprised. I mean, I had letters like physical letters with stamps sent and emails. People at Fox or the audience would tell me like I should wear skirts and pants that are, you know, longer that cover my knees because they look like pig snouts and they're oh my God. large and unattractive <laughs> and stuff. So then I then I started investigating knees and mm-hmm. knees are just ugly as are elbows, <laughs> but at least they face the other way. Right. And I started looking like at celebrities' knees and Giselle and Heidi Klum have the best knees, but like Beyonce and Kim Kardashian have big knees like me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, whatever. They're, they're bigger knees, but... I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so you meditate about your knees? So no, when I'm meditating my knees, I always, oh, yes, say, I always say, knees, thank you for being big and strong and holding me up and not needing a knee replacement and not being in pain. <laughs> what's the Since you started meditating, what's the longest you've gone without meditating? In the first year, it was like three different two-week periods where I just wasn't getting into the classes and life got in the way with like moving or what all, all sorts of things. And I just could feel the stuff that it was helping me with was those things were creeping back in. It's like I do get a little more anxiety. You know, I, I just crave it. Like I, tr- I do it almost every single day. Um, and if like two days goes by, it's like, Oh, I've got, I've got to meditate. It's just, it's amazing how just doing little, I, I, I like to think of it as like you're in the gym and your brain is lifting a weight mm-hmm. and that's the mantra. Like I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out. And just for some reason doing that helps with the rest of life. Like yeah. you're, you're just like in line at a store and maybe people are causing a scene or it's a long line and you're just, it's like, uh, whatever. Or people who are flipping you off on the road or something like that for no reason. You're just like, whatever, like that's, they must be having a bad day. That has nothing to do with me. Yeah. There's that moment in the book where someone gets angry at you on the road and you mention that, you know, before meditation that would have bothered you for a whole day. Oh yeah. I'm, that's how I am. Like if someone gets upset with me and I feel that it's mean unjust, not fair. It really, and I don't like this mm-hmm. about myself, but it really, on it. yeah, it stays with me because I feel like that was so, like the unfairness of it. Well, that's why you would really benefit from the fifth agreement too, because mm-hmm. both meditation and not ta- the knowing, not taking it personally. Right. Like, I mean, so I was, I, I I had nothing to do with the situation like and the guy was flagging me down and I thought he was trying to tell me like something was out of my car or something because I don't usually roll roll down the window for people that like yeah. want my attention or something and so I was like you know hey and he's like you're a stupid dumb bitch driver I was like 
I was like, are you serious? And he's like, fuck, F you. You can, you can swear. Oh. And like, I was like, huh? Like, oh, I was thinking in my head, like, bless you. Like, cause I was like, I'm not like, I was like, first of all, I did nothing wrong in this situation. Right. Like, why does that guy even care? Like it, it didn't involve him or me, like mm-hmm. me. Like I was like, what, what is that about? I was like, okay, he just clearly wanted to get mad. I mean, it's one thing if I, I own my part and stuff. So right. if I had done something that was, was to him or whatever, like then I would, it would be a little bit more justified. And, mm-hmm. but yeah that was just that was crazy i was like whoa that people are just some people are just angry yeah um so what was your tell me more about growing up in pennsylvania and about your childhood i had a great childhood i mean a lot of times you hear with addicts that they had like a lot of awful things like parent you know bad parents or sexual assaults or things like that like everything was normal i just had the bullying um and then i really just always knew what I wanted to do career wise. So I became like a work hard, play hard person. And we had kick ass bonfires all the time. We would just drink at them, but I always took it to the next level. Mm -hmm. So I was just like class drunk, (laughs) (laughs) just wasted, like always puking or disappearing or crying. It was just drama, 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 but also a really good student, right? Um, I was a B plus student. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the only year I got in college that I got straight A's was the time that I did Coke yeah. <laughs> to study, which is kind of sad, but I'm, I'm way more, uh, articulate. And, um, even though I, I did my turn, I did my crazy turnaround. So I've like hardly any sleep. So I'm like, I feel like I'm brain dead talking to you right now. <laughs> you don't sound brain dead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm struggling on some words right here. Yeah, I, I obviously being off all of the chemicals, the focus is way better mm-hmm. and the filter and all of that. Um, why do you think you took it to to a level that the other students weren't? I just think that that's how my brain's programmed. That's what I relate the disease of addiction to. Like, I know people are like, oh, it's a choice. You know, you don't choose to get cancer, blah, blah, blah. But there is some some i mean the addiction or the disease is that my brain is just programmed that i cannot just have one like mm-hmm. i want to keep going and i'm just i'm an all or nothing person like in a lot of things in my life like i uh, it's funny my photographer was like eating um goldfish in the news van he's like you want some and i was like no i actually told him i was like i cannot even have one because i will want like half of the box and i will feel sick and that's how i am like with candy or wheat thins <laughs> even when i was dating it's like i'm not good with uncertainty like i'm not i i would need to know like okay i'm fine if it's not going to work out like if we're not a thing that's fine but like what are we doing like i I would want to know, like, are we, are we in the, are we doing something? Mm-hmm. Is this happening? Like, am I seeing you again or not? Cause I, I don't like this game playing or whatever. Like I'm fine. Just tell me like, but yeah. How early would you be feeling that or saying that? Well, my policy with that was as long as I had plans to see the person, like that's fine. We didn't even have to text. Like mm-hmm. I'd be cool mentally. I'd be like, okay, well we have plans to see each other. But it was like after the date, if like you didn't have anything set up and you weren't sure, like, and you were maybe liking the person and you didn't know how, like, that's just no, I uncertainty. Hate, I, hated, right. I always hated that when I was right. dating. Yeah. I relate to that intensely. But I, I feel like I, I'm just like, okay, I'm either in a, if I'm in a relationship, great. Like I'm just an all or nothing person. Mm-hmm. So that, um, compulsiveness, uh, 
had that shown itself before you started drinking as a, as a young person? <sighs> um, I guess not. I think it came out at 15 mm-hmm. when I started drinking. I mean, I think that was probably my first notice of it because I, th- I think I started like the low carb diet when I was a junior or senior in high school. Mm-hmm. And so I've always had, I'm like that with carbs. It's like, I cannot start my day with carbs or I will eat bad the whole day. Like that's just how I am. But if I, that's why I, it's like, I always try to not eat carbs. I'll obviously mm-hmm. eat like the healthy ones, but like the bad ones, like I'll do the low carb diet. And then like when I'm not doing it for a day, like I'll eat everything in sight. And and I think too, that that can become a coping thing for like a stressful day where I'm not going to drink, but guess what? I want some pasta marinara. That is my comfort food. Or I want a McFlurry. That's also my favorite, like, you know, having a bad day. I'm going to stop through McDonald's to get a McFlurry. Mm Mm-hmm on the way home. And then ultimately I end up feeling horrible the next day because I have a food hangover. Right. (laughs) But in the moment I'm like, Oh, that's comforting. (laughs) So how do you deal with that stuff now? Now in in sobriety, do you find, are there certain things that you're struggling with still? Uh, I am able to recognize when I would have wanted to drink before. So sometimes I'll have really hard days reporting. I mean, if I'm covering a mass shooting or if I'm covering like some mom that just like had five of her kids killed or a horrible car accident or just like, that is like emotional energy that I take on because I think I'm kind of an empath. And so like that's a day where I will go to a meditation class or I will go to a yoga class or I will um, allow myself to eat the carbs or whatever. I'll take a shower and I'll go to bed because everything always is recharged the next morning. Um, yeah, so those those are things I do. I mean, I, I don't want – I've never come to the point where I was like, oh, I'm going to drink. Like mm. I the, the urge to drink has been lifted and uh, that's not even something I consider. Like I love my sobriety. I wouldn't – and I was – too, I had it drilled in my head over and over again. At, like rehab and early sobriety, like nothing gets better by drinking or drugging. So I've thought – I've like played the tape through in my head. Like, okay, really? What would happen if I was going to drink right now? Like – that I, you know, fuck up my sobriety date. Like I don't want to start over now. Now being out about it too, it's like you have right. to be a little bit more. It keeps you more accountable. Early on, did you have cravings or yearnings? No, I mean pretty much. That's why I recommend rehab because I was able to be in somewhere for twenty eight days, and so I was able to like notice the changes that were taking place in my brain, and I was starting to like how I was feeling. Mm-hmm. Um. You talk about dating in recovery mm-hmm. and that you would get hooked on the sex with these different guys. Yeah. The same guy over and over. <laughs> it's not really the same guy, but there was, you had a specific no, I, yeah, type. Yeah, I definitely had a type that was bad for me. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk more? Like, what was that type? Well, I don't know if I wasn't up for being treated right or if I was unavailable myself. And unavailable myself and seeking unavailable people, but I was just attracted to these guys that were narcissists and that were, um, they all hated their moms and they were like violent in bed almost, which was like exciting at first. But then it's weird because I almost had like an epiphany with it. Like I realized that my behavior was kind of similar to 
like, okay, I'm getting all excited because I know I'm going to like have sex tonight. And it was the same feeling of, oh, I know I'm going to do coke tonight. And then Mm. having like a bad experience where like some guys like verbally abusing me or saying like, you know, I'm this one guy. And this was the night I had the epiphany. He was like, yeah, court, your face is a 10, but your tits are like a seven minus. And uh, I want to buy you some boobs. Oh my and God. Those two coworkers of yours, like I want to have a threesome. Ugh. And then he was like holding me hostage there. And I just, uh, the next morning, like I was just thinking about it. Like it was just such an off. I was like, oh my God, that was like doing bad Coke and then waking up and feeling like I was cheapening myself or whatever like and and then i was like you know what i've i've had enough of this it was like coming to the realization like i've had enough of the drinking and partying like i've done enough of that for my lifetime like and it's really weird how it switched and now i'm able to see those those handsome six foot tall guys in suits that look like you know the the dark thick hair with brown eyes you know that type of guy and i can look at them and be like I know exactly how you are because I've dated you 20 times over and you're all the same. And like, I'm not interested in that anymore. That night that you're talking about, was this someone that you had, you had feelings for him, right? No, that was someone who I actually, that was someone who I had gone out with three years prior and he, we just had gone on like two dates or whatever and didn't even hook up. And he was just like, you're so, uh, he's the guy that it was like, you're so awesome. And you're this and that, and that, and that, but I just can't do the sober thing. Okay. Right. And so then he saw me on the news and like called me up mm. and I was just like, oh yeah, but you're hot. And like, I still like, I'll, I'll hook up with you now. Like, haha, like kind of joking. And then it was like, all right. So I knew we were going to like have a fun mm-hmm. night. And then that happened and it was just a disaster. Like it wasn't fun at all. And, right. and he, I was like seeing all the signs of the other, the, the other people. And um, yeah, so I got a, it was my epiphany night. You said that you felt like he was holding you hostage. Like in what way? I mean, he was, he, well, he's like, you're not leaving. Oh, like and, <laughs> in that the, way to the point where I was like in the bathroom thinking, uh, can I text 911? Right. Come like, get were, me out. Of were here. you scared? That's what I was wondering. Yeah. I was just like, let's just like basically have him fall asleep and me make my exit while he's sleeping, which mm-hmm. is what I did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not in, yeah. I mean, it was, it was a great last, last hurrah. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Because it, I'm grateful for that experience because it really changed my mindset. Um, how did you meet your current fiance? We met. I was I was speaking at a 12-step meeting and he was there. So he also uh, is sober and it's just we just have so much in common and we meditate together, we do yoga together. He is so funny. He's like one of the Hollywood types. He's a screenwriter and he's so good to me and I finally was like I can allow someone to be good to me. Like I I'm I was like I'm done with all these games. So it's just so refreshing to meet someone who's he's done like so much self-help work on himself. And so I was like more evolved and I wanted to find someone who was also more evolved and I feel like we both like like the universe, like we attracted each other because he was also looking for the same thing. So mm-hmm. it's been really wonderful. And you're really good friends with your ex's now wife. Yes. Right? My sister wife, <laughs> as I call her. That's amazing. Right. And I talk about that in my divorce chapter, how there's no point in like having resentments for things in the past, especially when I have two kids and like our primary focus of us still talking is to deal with them. And I don't want 
him to be in a bad place. Like I wasn't going to like screw him over financially. Like Mm -hmm. I want him to be able to take my kids to Hawaii or to, I don't want him feeding them top ramen and I want him to be happy. I don't want him to be stressed. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I helped, I helped get her in the door at KTLA. So we actually worked together and she's a, a really decent human being. And she's obviously like secure enough to deal with me and understands like that our relationship is just about the kids. And then with, we don't talk about my, you know, my ex and she doesn't talk about him either. Like we don't go there. So if you it's really the best case scenario, yeah, that's why I call it a love story divorce. Cause everyone thinks divorce is horrible. And I was like, well, mine's a love story. Do you feel like you're really lucky or did you work on having that kind of situation? I think if I had been, taken a different approach and been more aggressive then that would have been mirrored back to me. And so I think that he's really appreciative of the fact that we want to keep it pleasant, but I mean, who wouldn't want to keep it pleasant? Yeah. But also what I've noticed is funny, like there's no money involved. Like if I was having to pay him a bunch, Mm -hmm you know, for child support or alimony or something like that, I probably would have some feelings towards that. And I know he would have feelings about that towards me. So the fact that we like split everything down the middle with the kids, like I know that that helps. And also there was no like third person involved Mm -hmm. in our split. So people are like, how do you like Lauren? I'm like, she had nothing to do with our divorce. Like, it's not like, it's not like he was cheating on me with her. Like then that might've been a different situation, of course. Right. But they met like six months after. If you, and she's so great with my kids. I'm so lucky. And my fiance is so great with my kids too. Like I'm, I feel just so blessed with that whole situation. If you and, um, and Carter hadn't had kids, do you think that you would have responded to the, the divorce differently? Like, would it have been, well, I think the situation would have changed. And look, I run into, Carter all the time on stories. So, I mean, there's stories where like Lauren and his wife and I will all be on the story together. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, um, I I think in general, I tend to be a person who lets things go and get over things really quickly. And, um, I'm glad. And, and also like, I don't want to have any, I said that in the book, like you, you get like health issues and like cancer and stuff like that from holding resentments and being angry. Oh no. My question came out wrong. What I meant is you talk about how you cried for like two years. Oh yeah. Would you have, would it have been less devastating if you didn't have children together? Uh, maybe, maybe. I mean, yeah, I can't, I can't know. I can't say because things definitely changed but like in general, when you have kids, the dynamic of a relationship changes. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it got like, it probably played a lot of into the problems or more problems were issued into the marriage because of that. So mm-hmm. so what made you want to write this book and tell me about the journey of writing it? Well, I didn't come out on my social media as being sober until I had six years. And once I did that, then I started getting so many messages over these past four years. Like, how did you do it? What tips do you have? I really want to know your story. And I was responding to them, but then I'm like, gosh, I just need to like put it in one place (laughs) so that I can help people. And then too, like really, really loving being sober and wanting to share that message of hope with people who are struggling. So I feel like the perfect demo for my book is like the 
sober curious and the newly sober Mm -hmm. but I mean, like everyone who's read it has been like, you're so inspiring. Like I've taken messages away. Like you don't have to be sober to read the book. And you know, what's crazy is that my parents were like, we are not reading this book. My mom was like, so like upset about it and not, but then all of her friends were reading it and they were telling, like everyone was telling her how good it is. And I knew her curiosity would get to her. So she read it and then she sent me a picture of my dad reading it. And then like, (laughs) They're like, wow, we're really impressed with your writing. Because, like, I wrote the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it's funny because my friends were like, oh, my gosh, Courtney, you let your dad read about how you had a threesome with chocolate strawberry (laughs) sauce all over you and stuff like that. And, you know, how guys are, like, bruising you up in bed. I was like, yeah, I mean, uh, I guess. But apparently he really liked it. They were, like, impressed with with it. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um why did she, why was she not supportive of it initially? Well they they were like we don't want to we don't want to imagine our daughter in that way and that's not who you are anymore. And I was like but mom, like I'm who I am right now because of that 15 year party career. Mm-hmm. Like it's all a path now. And I think they were probably concerned what other people thought, but mm-hmm. once all of the positive reviews of the book started coming in and people were like, well, you know, like it's not that bad or like my mom's like, well, I know your sister said you curse a lot in it, but I don't even think that there were too many curse words. And when you said them, like they were justified. <laughs> <laughs> you should be like, leave that as an Amazon review, mom. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, that's a whole different story. Like people like have tried to leave reviews and they like kick reviews off. And oh, really? Yeah, it's weird. Like I don't know if they look at your Instagram and say like your friends can't review it or something. Huh? I don't know about that. Yeah, it's been a stressful two years writing the book, but I'm just looking forward. And now I am a best-selling author. Congratulations! I, the intention was always to help people. It wasn't to like make money or get famous or anything like that. And so I just want to spread the message to as many people as possible. Did How much did your parents know of what was going on? That's the thing. They're like, we didn't know all that was going on. I mean, I moved out of their house from college and then I moved to California. So I was across the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, they knew like I'd always get wasted when I came home, but they never knew about the drugs. And I think like maybe towards the end, like they knew I was doing pills, but were they in denial a little bit maybe um but i try to be like mom like because i'm accountable like so many people are like i blame my parents like i'm not a blame other people person Mm -hmm. like everything that i do is because i do it like i'm responsible for my actions so like they had nothing to do with it like i was doing that to myself did you like who told them you were going to rehab uh carter yeah. And was that a shock to them? <sighs> I I mean, I remember my mom saying to me a few years after, like, do you really think that rehab was necessary? And she did not tell like her, she didn't tell anyone mm-hmm. that I was in rehab in, until years later. And then everybody was really supportive of it. But like my grandmom still doesn't know. And she's always like, your grandmom would be devastated. And I'm like, why? And hasn't <laughs> grandmom noticed that like I haven't drank in 10 years at any mm-hmm. of the functions like who cares and that's the thing like the fifth agreement will also help you again with not caring what anyone thinks like i know my intention was pure on this so like i really don't care what anyone else thinks like for pe- people 
um, were like, well, what about your kids? They're going to grow up and read these stories. And I was like, I tell my kids all the time that they wouldn't even be here unless I was sober. And like, they came with me, like when I had my 10 year anniversary of being sober to the meeting and, um, they, they know, like, they know all about it. Like they know that like Jim, my fiance and I are sober and, and when kids, like if they're, if they have the addiction gene or not, like obviously they have a chance of that, mm-hmm. but kids that do drink and drug, but their parents are in like AA, uh, they tend to get sober way quicker and get back into the rooms or get to the rooms good. faster. Um, so I just, you know, I'm a good example to them. And again, like, Hey, I wouldn't be a present mom, uh, for you. If I hadn't gone through that, you mm-hmm. wouldn't even be here. So, right. <laughs> right. um, jump back, jumping back to something you said way early. Uh, what is it about being a newscaster that appealed to you? I'm just really curious about people. So, and I, it's, it's almost like, I mean, in a sense, some of the job is performing like in a play, but Mm -hmm. you're just under different elements. I mean, so I like, I like, you know, I guess, and I like giving information to people. Like I like being a service, providing Mm -hmm. a service and I like knowing what's going on. So being in the action, uh, so I get the, I mean, I have the chance to report and be on the anchor desk at KTLA. And then I've also done the whole entertainment world. I did that for when my time at Fox news and interviewed celebrities and on the red carpets and the Oscars and all that. And now I'm just like horrible stories. <laughs> well, you t- in the book, you talk about when you, when that actually, I found that part very inspiring when you were talking about sort of how to change your perception of something. Yes, yes. Definitely. Well, that's, that's what I thought I was yeah. like when people, people are like upset with their job or something like how I, I completely dissected cause I, I hated, I mean, I hated, um, Going doing back the general to, assignment reporting. Right. Yeah. And like, I didn't want to do it, but I knew <laughs> I had to support, I knew it's my job. So I, I talk about the whole change of mindset. And where are you with that now? Like entertainment versus general assignment? Um, well, so I went back to reporting today. I've been filling and anchoring and had off for the book tour. So I, I realized like I hadn't reported in like five weeks or something like that. And so um, there were two photographers, like one was in the truck and the other one was standing there when I went to work today. And I was like, wait, I got to do the mantra. You know, who are we going to meet today? Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, she's back. <laughs> and I was like, and then they were kind of joking with me, like, why am I here? <laughs> like, and I'm like, don't make fun of me. You know, when you work with me, you are mantra protected. If you do the mantra. <laughs> and the day always goes smooth when I do the mantra. And mm-hmm. if there's a stressful thing, like I'm always able to handle it. Uh, so you talk a little bit about different celebrities that you met, who you liked, who was tough. So Hank Williams Jr. hawked a loogie into your purse onto it mm-hmm. my uh my regular <laughs> listeners know i have a real thing like if there's one thing that makes me queasy it is loogies so it's really it's oh, masochistic yeah. of me to go down this road and yet to i must know more. what happened <laughs> what did the loogie look like <laughs> no no uh, i don't no, need that yes, kind of detail. yes. Uh, well luckily it wasn't too gooey <laughs> well what happened was i was interviewing hank williams jr and he was very drunk and i was eight and a half months pregnant and he was blowing a cigar into my face and i'm like uh, I have a ginormous belly. Thanks for blowing that into right. my face. And I'm asking him questions. I don't. I, was, I don't even remember why. Why I was interviewing him. And all of a sudden he goes, <sighs> and I see the loogie go. And I, I had my purse right down on the floor. And I'm mm-hmm. like, 
Oh gosh, please. I I hope that didn't land on there. And then he just walks away like mid sentence in the middle of like a live interview, although it was online. If it had been on TV, it totally would have gone. Right. And now, nowadays we probably could have put it on there and made it go viral. Mm -hmm. But so when he walked away, I looked at my purse and there was the loogie right on on my coach purse is on the side. And you said that Britney Spears was difficult. She was challenging to interview only because she didn't have much to say and was very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so that just makes the interview very difficult. Uh, So you saw Bombshell, Mm -hmm. right? What did you think of it? It kind of brought back a little bit of PTSD and anxiety for me because there were so many scenes in Roger's office Mm -hmm. and I obviously had my own time in there with him. And look, I didn't know a lot of what was going on, but I did have to do twirls for him and he would say pervy comments to me. And I I just was so young in the business. I I didn't know, like, is this how it is Mm -hmm. or... Ever, I mean, we didn't really talk about it until later. I feel like more people came, you know, out and like, hey, did you have to twirl for Roger or something like that? Because not everybody did. Right. Um, but you guys would compare notes before it all blew up? No, after. After. After, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I told my husband at the time, I was like, hey, and he's like, yeah, that's weird, but like, they're paying you, so keep doing it. <laughs> Did the t- total male perspective, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's weird, but keep doing it because he's paying you. Did the twirling feel super skeevy? Because a little bit, I can see... And I, I should be really careful no, what I say. No, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, like, part of it is to upkeep your body. Like, you have to look... You have to still... like. I mean, well, yeah, what I was, it's a visual medium. So right. to expect news anchors to look a certain way or remain under a certain weight or something, I wasn't even gonna go that far, but just saying that like to expect to be able to, you know, like in the same way that at an audition, they'll take a picture of your whole body. Like right. that's part of it. So I can, you know, there's right. a way it, it's not skeevy, but I get with him. It was. Yeah. I mean, but that's, I say in the book like that. I just kind of deflected that and was like, oh, it's Dom's. And I made up that term, dirty old man symptoms right. or dirty, well, no, dirty old man syndrome or dirty old man symptoms. Every man has one or the other. <laughs> so it's like, are you going to become a dirty old man? Mm-hmm. There's there's some signs. <laughs> right. When all the news stories. But sometimes started- I think I have dirt. I have Dom's too. <laughs> <laughs> like how? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'll tell women like, oh, they're hot or you look great. Like, is that like being a dirty old man? Uh, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> um, when all the news stories started coming out, were you surprised? Because I know that when... Well, the Fox, the lawyers called me oh. about my interactions with Roger. They wanted, they were like, your name was given to us as someone who, you know, might have dealt with this. And I was like, well, I mean, I did have to do that. But like, and like, he would say things like this and that. And I don't, but it's funny because they... They came, when they called me, they made it seem that they were on Roger's side. So they were like, we just want to know like what we're dealing with. We're working for Roger. So just tell us. Mm. So they kind of tricked me. So wait, who, which lawyers were they? It was the lawyers that Fox Television hired to get rid of, like to do the internal investigation that ultimately led to his firing. Oh, I mean, not that I was honest. Um, Yeah. And they're like, well, how did it make you feel? And I was like, well, I, I mean, 
I, I was kind of almost defending him. Like I was like, well, I mean, I get it. Like I had a baby and I came back and maybe wanted to see like if I was in shape or not. Mm-hmm. And like, well, is it, I was like, is that harassment? And they're like, well, harassment's just how it makes you feel. And I told, I think I told them the doms. I was like, I don't know. I just thought like, yeah, dirty old man. Like, is that kind of the culture? Because, I mean, the world used to be a whole different place. Like, right. you hear stories all the time. Even, like, how anchors did blow on the desk and then would read headlines mm-hmm. or were drinking and stuff. Like, that's not happening today that I know of. Maybe in the bathroom first, but not <laughs> on the desk. Yeah, I know that when all the story, like, both the Harvey Weinstein Me Too stuff and then all the Fox News stuff, it was a real wake-up call for me. And, I mean, I'm, like, in and of this world, but still I felt like, God, I've been so naive. I didn't. Of course, I knew it happens here and there, but I didn't realize how pervasive right. it is. Well, I, with Gretchen Carlson, I, who knew all that stuff was going on? Right. And that's what I said in the book. Like, I did not have the same experience as some people. Although, I wonder if Roger was testing me one time because he asked me, what drives you, money or fame? And I was like, I just want to be happy. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, this girl's too pure. This ain't going to work on her. So what do you think? Like if you had answered a different way, what do you think could have happened? Oh, I don't know. I just said I, I don't need to have all the money in the world. And I certainly wouldn't want to be too famous that I couldn't chow down on a bowl of pasta in a corner of the restaurant somewhere. And that's, right. I still feel that way to this day. Mm-hmm. But I've, I mentioned it to people since then. And they're like, oh, yeah, Roger was definitely testing you. Because what if I had been like, I, you know, I want to yeah. shit. Like if I, I mean, if I was like, I'll do anything for mm-hmm. a show, like who knows? But yeah. I was just like, I just want to be happy. <laughs> like, that's such probably to a powerful person. That's probably like, that's so lame. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, you look a lot like Margot Robbie. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so people I- were like, is that based on you? And now having seen the movie, it definitely wasn't because we, I was hired to be on air. She was the producer mm-hmm. and she actually did those things in the movie. Spoiler alert. <laughs> right. Um, I feel, because I feel like some old school red eye people will be listening. I feel like we, there, there's like some red eye stories or red eye talk that we should have, but I, I don't have a specific red eye question. Any red eye memories to share? Um, I just know I, those people saw me drunk and wasted a lot. <laughs> they were also drunk and wasted a lot. Right. Well, they were like, yeah, some of my party buddies. Yeah. Um, but hey, I just, you know, went back and saw some of them. So, um, look, I don't I don't judge, I don't preach, I don't care what anyone else does. I do know that some people that I partied with when I was using are now 10 years later like sober curious themselves. And mm-hmm. so I was like, my book is perfect for you. Because so many people don't want to get sober because they think they're never going to have fun again and that life will suck and you'll be angry and whatever. And and look, in the beginning, it is a lot like Groundhog's Day <laughs> and you have a lot of time with yourself and you might not like yourself all that much, but your definition of fun just changes and things just become so much more real and meaningful. Um, so I am on Patreon, patreon.com slash Allison Rosen. And one of the perks of being on Patreon, being a Patreon subscriber, uh, in addition to a whole host of other things, is that uh, people can submit their questions and I will ask you. So we have a couple questions. Oh, that's so fun. Let's get to them. When we ask, they send them in. They're wondering how you have been. So thanks so much for answering these questions from our 
Okay. Alyssa Van Dyke says, firstly, thank you for being brave and telling your story with honesty. What has been the best thing since you've released your book and what has been the hardest? The best thing has been the past two weeks being able to do media interviews and have three parties and see people from all walks of my life coming out and supporting the book. That's been the best part. The worst part was the two years <laughs> leading up to it with all of the stress of not knowing, am I going to get a book deal? Am I going to get a lit agent? Like, should I do this or that? Because everybody has an opinion of what you should be doing. And I tried to self-publish, do it all myself. But it's like, I have a full-time job and two kids. And like, I would read articles about it. And my brain just like, wasn't comprehending the the different ways of doing it. It just seemed way too complicated. And it's like, I got to pay someone to do it. And I think too, diving back into the material was a little rough. People are asking me if it's cathartic. I, I just didn't, I, there's only two chapters I really enjoyed writing. And that was the meditation chapter and how to have fun sober. The rest of it, I kind of get would get this sinking feeling like, because I did do it chapter by chapter. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, Oh gosh, now I have this horrible topic to cover and I got to go back through my divorce and I got to go back through all those horrible dating stories and I got to go back through rehab and I got to bring up this shame thing. But I knew the intention was, you know, this is to help people. Like I have to throw in all the crazy stuff I did so that I'm relatable so that people realize, oh wow, she really did have a problem. She needed to get sober. And I don't think anyone's not doubting that. That I no, it's pretty clear that I that <laughs> I needed clear that you I needed it. Needed it, yeah. Is there one specific thing that was like the hardest part to write? Hmm. I think uh, I it was the going back through rehab was hard because I had a rehab folder and I had written a lot of notes and stuff. So reading like the raw feelings I was feeling at that Mm -hmm. time. I mean, obviously I'm grateful that I was doing that at that point, but that that was probably the most difficult part. Isn't that interesting though? Like I don't even want to go back and read old emails sometimes. (laughs) If it was anything where I know there was a bit of conflict or there was, I I don't know what that resistance is, but it's, yeah. Cause I plus two, like I'm so in the present that it's, it's like, why am I going, you know, why even bother going through the past? But again, it was, it was to help people. Uh, and then Whitney C says, what's the easiest emotion for you to access and what's the hardest? Well, I don't know if it's an emotion, but authenticity, thankfully is pretty easy for me. Even in my career, I've always been able to just be myself. And I don't know if that comes with being sober or meditating, but I'm very comfortable in my own skin and I'm able to bounce off any negativity. So that's good. And then the worst thing, emotion. The hard, the one that's hardest for you to access. Mm-hmm. Um, well, a feeling of, I would think, not being accepted or not being liked. That's mm-hmm. that's a negative feeling, even though I've made a ton of progress on dealing with it and not letting myself being affected. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to feel included so primal, in yeah. something. So that and obviously the horrible stories <laughs> that I deal with too, like dealing with death and being like so close and present with people going through that. It's mm-hmm. it's hard for me to not like, I feel for these people so much. So it's, it, that's challenging. How would burnout must set in with people who are covering these horrible stories all the time. Yeah. Right? That's why a lot of people in the business drink. They numb out. 
Yeah. And so that's when sometimes I'm like, how can I numb out? Like, I just don't want to feel the Vegas shooting. I talk about that. Oh, mm-hmm. that was, that was the worst. I was like two weeks immersed in it. And I had like an epic meltdown sobbing violently on the floor for hours. Just like, take me, I can't deal with this anymore. I can't. And yeah. look, I, obviously I didn't lose a loved one in that, but I wasn't a regular viewer who could turn off the TV and, Oh, I just hope that we don't have any more of those, but we will. I had a survivor on this show who had been shot in the leg um, and just did uh, that episode like being immersed in that story for that short amount of time right, was so intense for me. Yeah, I was I was then in I was thinking about that while reading your book, reading about what you, you know, went through thinking like, imagine if that had been two weeks. I know. And I was in Vegas too, right after it happened. And just the energy, you could just feel it. I I think with meditating, I'm very in tune to people's energy. So Mm. I I love to compliment people like, wow, you have really great energy. And I obviously recognize uh, people's negative energy too, but you can feel it. It's weird. Do you feel like you take people's stories home with you? Like I know with Lacey, who was on the show, anytime there's been a shooting since, and there's been so many, she pops into my mind right Mm -hmm. away because I just imagine how it must be for her having gone through that experience to now be turning on the news and seeing this. Well, I can tell you that I'm friends with one of the victims wives of the San Bernardino shooting Mm -hmm. and we're close. Like we, every time something happens, she texts me and she's just having that she's having PTSD. So that happens. Uh, yeah. So I always think of her. Yeah. Man, I feel like we've covered everything. We have jumped around. <laughs> Courtney yes, Friel. We have. Thank, thank you. you so much for, for being on the on. show. I'm going to put a link to the book in the episode summary of this episode, but the book is called Tonight at 10 Kicking Booze and Breaking News by Courtney Friel, F R I E L. Um, anything else you want to plug? Do you want to tell them where to find you on social media or anything? I'm just at Courtney Friel at everything. There's resources if you know someone who needs help at CourtneyFrailBook.com. And my podcast, uh, is with celebrities or high profile people it's 20 minutes and we talk about living sober their stories uh and right and that is called keeping it Freel conversations on recovery mm-hmm. and that is that hosted by kt ktla LA? well no i i shoot it with ever talk tv and then ktla takes the audio and puts it on their got it format so you got can it. watch it both video or listen to it very cool um and then follow me on instagram and twitter at allison rosen listen to my other podcast childish it's my parenting podcast with greg fitzsimmons i also have a book out um go to allisonrosen.com for all allison rosen related things and if you like what you're hearing subscribe tell a friend uh and leave a review because that helps out the podcast so much courtney thank you for being on the show thank you listeners great to see you good to see you too thank you for listening i love you goodbye hey do you know about the allison rosen show we had a good time but now we gotta go Yeah, Alison Rosen is your new best friend.